Hey listeners, Catherine here. I wanted to let you know that this particular episode does contain mentions of sexual assault and assault. From WPVMLP in Asheville, it's the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Catherine Campbell. And I'm Jonathan Ammons. And this is the Walker Brothers with the late, great Scott Walker.
so yeah, when you were growing up, did your family do like the whole get together, gather at grandma's house kind of dinner thing regularly, or was that just for holidays? No, we definitely gathered at my grandmother's house. Um, she lived five minutes away, so that was a given. We would get we would uh, gather there on the weekends. And my grandmother would make very strong margaritas, which I would sneak <laughs> sips of my mom's when she wasn't looking. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, Starting she was you off early. Yeah. What about you? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, my family, my both of my grandmothers lived that the same distance, like that close as, as yours did. Mm-hmm. And uh, we would do like weekly dinners at, we called her Boo, at Boo's house. And... Uh, yeah, we did those well until until she passed away, mm. and then it just kind of fell off, and we didn't really do the family dinner thing anymore. Yeah, same with my family. After my grandmother passed away, it was it was like we didn't have that magnet, that anchor for yeah. our at the family dinner table anymore. Yeah, it's so interesting how there's that one person that's kind of the bond that pulls everybody together. Yeah, and it's so important. I I kind of wonder. If, if that's something that's going to change with generations or mm-hmm. if there will always be someone in everyone's family who's able to bring everyone together. Yeah. And pass down the traditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's what, that's what Ron Hayes wrote about in this story that we've got up next. And uh, yeah, here's Jesse Ratliff reading his piece. Start with the rice. Six or eight cups should be enough, depending on the size of your turkey. Don't worry about making too much. Not a sin to have a little extra. It's always better to make more than you need. Now here's a trick my grandmother taught me. Put a little garlic in with the rice while it boils. Taste. If the rice sticks to your teeth a little, it's done. Let it cool. My first 19 Thanksgivings were all the same. Sun or rain, snow or fog. Dad piled us into the car before the parades came on TV and drove us to his mother's house, a tiny, one-bedroom Cape Cod halfway between the suburbs and downtown. On holidays, her creaky old dining room table would host anywhere from 12 to 20 adults, a cigarette smoldering in practically every hand, voices rising with each glass of wine, and laughter booming through every corner. We kids ate in the hot kitchen. Get your eggs, your pepperoni, some more garlic, the cheese, and some parsley. A lot of parsley. A little salt and pepper if you want. Some dried basil and oregano too, if you like it. Your dad likes a lot of oregano. No, no, you don't have to measure. Just taste it, a little at a time. That's how you learn, a little at a time. I don't know when I first began to appreciate the magic they made in grandma's kitchen on holidays. Just the geometry of it is mind-boggling. A half dozen women orchestrating a meal for 25 in a triangle barely bigger than my wife's closet, negotiating egos, dancing around gossip, and minding the unspoken hierarchy that saw the eldest pair cooking a half dozen different dishes on a singular range four-coil burners while monitoring an oven with barely enough room for the enormous bird. My mom and my aunts seemed to be guided by instinct as they helped, checking the ham in the roaster, prepping the salads and veggie trays, slicing the Italian bread, and taking turns punting us sweaty, squawking children back into the living room. Meanwhile, in the dining room, the men smoked and drank and argued and laughed, waiting for the food to appear. Grate your Parmesan, grate your Romano, Don't be stingy. Go ahead and grate it all. Beat the eggs. Throw the basil and oregano in. Your dad likes a little cheese mixed in with his eggs too, but I don't. Do what you want. Chop the pepperoni chunky. Slice the garlic thin. Mince the parsley as little or as much as you want. Have pepper ready. The salt can wait. The Italian comes from my grandmother's side. She's a Masone whose parents came over from Naples, married Jack, a one-eyed German-Irishman whose last name I carry. Theirs was a home of arguments and banter at the table, loud and contentious and sometimes harsh, 
As often as not, though, the adults would end up laughing together as loudly as they'd been arguing. Such a strange dance. It took me nearly half a century to fully get it. I'm only now understanding how, when it came to be my turn to fill the table, I'd been trying too hard too often, and for far too long, to force that same strange dance onto holiday dinners at my house. I like to tell myself I've learned a different, healthier dance, but I know I'm lying. I still cook the same, though. In the largest bowl you have, swirl a clove of cut garlic around the gleaming inner surface. See how the garlic sugar makes your fingers sticky? Keep them out of your mouth. Dump the rice into the bowl. Don't just leave it in a heap. Make a little hole in the pile with your fist. Pour in the eggs. Cover it all with the parsley. I was in no way ready for the upheaval that came with my 20th Thanksgiving day. No one in my family was. Hazy at the edges now after 30 years, I can still remember the aftertaste of that day. Flat, metallic, off. And the miracles that came out of Grandma's kitchen in 1989 were wrought only through rote memory and force of habit. The dance defeated. Our collective laughter didn't boom throughout the room, but instead fell around us empty, thin, hollow. The kids in the kitchen were no longer kids. The wine went uncorked, the cookies stayed unbaked, and my father, dead in his grave less than a month, sapped the strength of our bonds in his absence. Thanks, Agent Orange. Work in from the edges. Use your hands to blend white rice with yellow egg and green parsley. I know your dad sneaks in a little crushed red pepper, but he shouldn't. Once the eggs are worked through, blanket wet rice with dry cheese. Mix well, look for balance. Want to know a secret? You will love the way this smells for the rest of your life. As I approach my 50th Thanksgiving day, I find myself wanting more than ever to be able to open the back door of that tiny Cape Cod and step directly into Grandma's kitchen again. I want to be overwhelmed by the symphony of aromas and the 40 degree temperature change as I walk through the door. I have dreams about taking my grown sons through that door, and with them, the women they love. More than anything, I wish I could carry my young grandson in on my hip. I want their senses bombarded by garlic caramelizing in hot olive oil, a rice-stuffed turkey roasting in the oven, the plain, unadorned ham simmering in the electric roaster. I want their attention turned by the brine of jumbo black olives and the simple dressing of olive oil and red wine vinegar on the salad. I want them, in that instant, to soak up all the years of Thanksgivings and the years and years of Christmas Eves and fried bacalao, squid boiled with lemon and parsley, and the enormous pot of greens, endive, escarole, black olives, and broccoli boiled in water with garlic and olive oil. I want to see the kids stalking each other through the house with pitted olives on their fingertips and sneaking away from the dessert table with piles of pizzelle and knots and Easter bread. I want to share my all-time favorite Easter dish with them for the first time, listening as my grandmother explains the ratio of barley to water and salt pork and garlic and egg and salt. I want to grate a blanket of snowy Parmigiano-Reggiano onto their heaps of pastide and wonder afterward if they'd also love it cold like I do. I'll wonder if they'll want to learn how to make it. Now your hands will be a mess. Ask your wife, your husband, your child, a friend, your father, your grandmother, someone you love whose hands are clean and dry, to help by adding the thin garlic and thick pepperoni to your bowl. Work it through. Taste. No, the raw egg won't hurt you. Season. Taste again, get the balance right, then get your turkey ready. That kitchen door is closed now for good. Grandma sold her house a few years ago when the strain on her 90-year-old bones got to be just too much. My kids, now in their 20s, barely remember it, let alone the miraculous magic of the food we shared there. Time passes, life happens, we move on. 
Clean the cavity of your bird, then sprinkle with salt and pepper. Stuff it with as much of the rice as you can. Then pack in a little more. Tie off the legs. Let the excess stuffing fall into the pan. It'll be fine. Bake any extra separately in a shallow pan. Smack the hands of your sons as they swoop in and scoop fingers full for themselves. Laugh. Roast the bird until it's cooked through. I didn't get it at the time, but what my 20th Thanksgiving was trying to teach me was that sometimes the recipe doesn't work. Sometimes the skin won't peel away from the onion, and in frustration you tear away and toss an entire layer. Sometimes you look away for just a moment, and the garlic that was perfuming the air in hot oil turns black and bitter and burnt beyond saving. A bit of eggshell slips into your omelet. Sauces break, milk sours, life happens. But here's what my mother, my grandmothers, dad, and years of watching them cook ultimately did teach me. You don't give up on the dance. You turn down the burner, you stir a little hot water into your broken sauce. You substitute fontanella for parmesan. You keep stirring, you keep tasting, you keep cooking. And if you're doing it right, you keep laughing, too. Food is life, but cooking is love. And in our family recipe, sharing either one makes you family. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is on the air here at WPVM due to our underwriter, the Marketplace Restaurant. Celebrating 40 years as Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, founded in 1979, the Marketplace Restaurant has always had the mission of bringing Asheville the best the region has to offer from our own backyard, farmed by our neighbors. Nitroglycerin and powdered C4 and I will always love you. I drive a modified T-Series Lola. It's kind of heavy, but I like the feel. When I say Vietnam, it sounds just like Coca-Cola. I believe most anything as long as it's not real and I will always love you. I battle aliens from outer space. They got one eye right in the middle of their face. I grab my laser gun, I know my place. Somebody has to save the human race And I will always love you It seems hopeless, but wouldn't you know They got a weakness and they let it show They can't jump and they're a little bit slow I say World War II, I mean the video and I help
you go. All right. When Sarah Stender Delaney landed in Rwanda, she was in a deep process of recovery. Before this trip, Sarah had been studying abroad in Grenoble, France, when one night after a late dinner, she had been followed home by a stranger who forced his way into her home, attacked Sarah, and raped her. Overwhelmed by trauma, Sarah turned to alcohol, trying to cover up how she felt, which became in itself a long road to recovery that led her to Rwanda. She arrived with the intention to open a restaurant. What she didn't expect was that she would eventually found a different business, her fair trade tea company, Three Mountains. Drawn in by Rwanda's history of deep, deep trauma following the genocides of the 90s, Sarah wanted to know what makes a society like that so resilient. Because if the people of Rwanda can still find meaning and hope after watching their neighbors butcher their own friends and families in the streets, what could Sarah and the rest of us learn from them? John talked with Sarah for an article for the upcoming spring issue of WNC Magazine. And here's part of their conversation. Is, how did you wind up in Rwanda? So I, I had just moved to Asheville uh, 13, 12 years ago. 12 years ago, I had moved to Asheville. Been here for a year. I moved down here from Vermont. Um, and I love Asheville. Um, I was working for, I brought my own job with me. Um, I was running a national fair trade campaign. At the time, it was called Fair Trade Towns USA. Oh, cool. Now it's owned by Fair Trade USA, which is a third-party certifying body. And um, so I, I was corresponding with producer groups around the world in that capacity. Um, and I started connecting with this organic coffee farmer in Rwanda called, his name is Mr. Emmanuel. And I found that he had pursued organic certification, I think it was 2007, um, very proactive. Like the demand was not that great for single origin Rwandan organic coffee. (laughs) And it's expensive to do that. So I somehow found his email and uh, he responded, this Rwandan man, and he said, Um, he gave me all this information about their farm and their process and why he did what he did because he knew it was the right thing for his people, for the environment. And then he said, you're welcome to come visit. Oh, wow. I was like, all right, (laughs) I'll be there. (laughs) He probably says that to everyone. Um, I did eventually meet him, which is pretty amazing. Awesome. Um, But there were a lot of seeds like that planted along the way. Even before that, Um, In my early 20s, I watched this documentary about the genocide in Rwanda. And, I mean, I speak about that in my TED Talk. That that film just changed my life. It was at a time in my life that I was, you know, I said already, kind of lost, like really unhappy. Like, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. Um, I wasn't suicidal, but I would say I was like, just what the heck is the point here? You yeah. Know? Despair. Despair. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's when, when I listened to your TED talk, that was the thing that, that fascinated me the most, I think, was I was like, did this come from, did that draw to that place come from seeing people that have been through tragedy that you understand mm-hmm. and can relate to? Like, was it just... I can't even think of the word that I'm looking for there, mm-hmm. <laughs> but like, because you know, you, you you were attacked and yeah. you have that PTSD that yeah. you were trying to deal with it, yeah. and then to see a whole society of people yeah. that share shared this massive amount of trauma. Yeah, exactly. It was it was like I was living this just kind of checked out, numbed out life. I was turning to alcohol to check out even more, feeling really disconnected from other people and myself. Mm-hmm. I was living a false identity. You know, the person I presented on the outside wasn't who I was feeling on the inside. Yeah. And when I watched that movie, it's like, I, yeah, you would think that I wouldn't really feel anything in common for maybe a group of women in Rwanda halfway around the world where I'd never been. But it was like, I, I, I felt an instant connection. Yeah. But it was this it was like a feeling of my heart breaking open like I could f- I could feel their pain. So I I was 
I felt um, so sad for what they had gone through. And then as I started processing it, I realized it was actually like sadness for what I had experienced that I had never allowed myself to feel. Yeah. So they started me on my healing journey without us even meeting. And wow. it's like how powerful is like a movie, a film, a book, a radio program that we can share our stories with each other no matter where in the world we are. Yeah. It's and and that's why I love you know, having the opportunity to come on pro like this program because who knows who's listening? Yeah. And I think so many people are feeling alone in whatever their experience is, but no one's really ever, I don't think anyone's ever experienced something that no one else has ever experienced. Yeah. We're not that unique. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> like, even, like, I went through, I mean, I, I had some things happen. I did some things. I was like, yeah, there's no way anyone else did that. But now <laughs> I hear stories all the time. Right. Crazy stories, but they're not that unique. Yeah. And and I'm not saying like I I I would never never claim to understand what it is like to live through a genocide. Oh my gosh, there's no way right. I could I wouldn't even try to relate to that. But there's always something in common we have with each other. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, a great experience or not a great experience. But um, it was this deep, deep calling. Like, I've got to go to this place that has experienced the worst imaginable thing. And they've moved through it somehow. Mm -hmm. They're still suffering, just like they're suffering everywhere in the world. Yeah. There's trauma everywhere. Yeah. Um, but how have they recovered? After that, you know, when the land was covered in blood, I mean, there were bodies everywhere. Yeah. People being like people being cut up with machetes in front of you, you know. And I was talking to a man at the, the event this morning who had been to Rwanda and um, actually in the 70s before the genocide. And then he went back a few years ago and he was telling me how different it was from the 70s. And 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 also was just like so amazed that to see how a whole nation could be recovering yeah. after such a tragedy. And it's not the only place in the world. I mean, there have been so many genocides. Right. Um, how long were you there when you lived in? Almost a year. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And you were running a restaurant down there? Mm-hmm. How did that go? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was crazy. <laughs> I mean, I had worked in restaurants, so I guess I was um, maybe 30 um, and I had definitely done every, you know, I had waitress hosted, like I had a lot of experience working in restaurants, yeah. um, but not in Africa. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> I thought it's a, a wee bit different there. That is not the kind of, like, I, it is not the industry for me. I mean, I, that kind of stress, that kind of, uh, that kind of urgency was like so stressful for me. And so combine that with... Um, it was, first of all, like I was just so naive, like bringing all kinds of equipment for the kitchen, um, that just everything would break and there's no way to fix it and there's no parts. And, um, and then I remember, um, especially in our culinary arts training program, it was just so laughable that, you know, and so like, there's just so many cultural differences. If you think about a population that um, most people, you know, most people are just barely getting by. And food is a source of energy and survival. Yeah. It's just a matter of, like, how many calories do we need today to live? And how do we get the calories? Um, so when you add in this idea that eating and Food is this, like, you know, beautiful, colorful experience. And um, I, I'll never forget, like, trying to incorporate, like, food art, right? <laughs> so making the plate look pretty right. for the customer, it was just a, it wasn't working. <laughs> <laughs> and then to, like, try to train um, front of house staff in describing the flavors and the nuances, it just isn't, it's not part, part of the culture. Yeah. When, you know, most people eat twice a day and it's rice and beans 
maybe matoke, which is like um, cooked potatoes and bananas, and maybe some kind of meat, mm. like rarely. Yeah. That's it. So, and you eat in t- you you eat as much as you can put on your plate, and you you eat all of it, and then you know hope for another meal. Right. So it was really. It it was such and it, it was such a learning experience for me that year to just realize it was so humbling, you know. Yeah. Um, but we were also building a place where we were appealing to tourists and international customers. So we still had to maintain like a certain level of you know, we had to meet their expectations while honoring and respecting the local population's culture. Yeah. And not asking them to change who they were. But it was, you know, I would say um, as much as I learned and it changed my life, I I knew that wasn't the industry I was meant to be in. That was really my ticket there. Yeah. It opened the door for me to learn about the culture. And what it really did is it opened the door for me to learn about the work that I still had to do on a personal level. Yeah. Because I was not prepared for the level of trauma that I was going to encounter. Yeah. Um, And it brought up a lot of my own stuff. It brought up, you know, by the end of the time we had there, we were offered a second um, contract, and I just knew I needed a break. I knew that I had to leave and process everything I had experienced and get grounded and do some deeper healing work on myself because – Everyone there has a story and like there's a lot of sad stories and it's in your face. It's like there's memorial sites on every corner. Mm -hmm. And sometimes just like in this country, you walk by someone because I would walk. I didn't drive. I would walk back and forth to the restaurant every day. Long walks. And I would I remember sometimes just passing someone and everyone always looked into my eyes Um. And have you ever looked at someone and it's like their eyes are just dead? Yeah. It's like there's nothing there, just like a stone. Yeah. It's the saddest thing. Mm. And it's almost like the soul has just left. Yeah. And I would see people like that. And I think it maybe it just hit me so much because I realized like I, I had almost been there. Yeah. Like I was leaving, you know, there were times in my life where I had just checked out too. Yeah. And it's really sad to see that in someone because I think we all have so much potential. And I think, I think a lot of people give up on life because they lose sight of their light. Mm-hmm. And maybe there aren't people around them that that, help, that can help them see that light. Right. And that's what we do. It's not, we're not empowering someone else. I don't believe you do that. I believe yeah. we are helping people to uncover the light that they already have. Yeah. Them. I mean, I can't imagine being in, <laughs> I can't imagine trying to sort my own shit out when I'm also watching these people have that mm. depth of difficulty in Mm. in what they have to surmount Mm -hmm. you know that that has to be i don't know it's i think i said this earlier too that it just that kind of shared trauma must be a Mm. nice place to be able to work on yourself yeah for a while and then i think what i found too i went through this new shift in the past probably four or five years where i realized Sometimes trauma actually bonds people together and mm-hmm. it becomes toxic. Yeah. Um, so I had to break away from some things and some people. Yeah. Um, some family members, because I realized that was almost the glue that was binding us together. And it was holding me back in certain ways of like going farther with my healing. You couldn't get beyond it because Just to release it, it yeah. had to be. It was based on it. Yeah. And, and, and that's why I first had to leave Rwanda because I. I I felt like I was taking on other people's story and holding it and it was just so sad I couldn't take it. Yeah. And I'm like I don't know. I I had to learn more skills for um being able to like hold space for people and and listen yeah. with an open heart without it like seeping into my cells as like my own experience. Right. And I think for a lot of people who are empathic um, or really vulnerable and too too vulnerable in their own healing, um, that's a real big risk. And it's not doing anyone a service. Right. Yeah. And I think 
that's important for everyone to know before traveling to a place like that. Yeah. Because um, we have to be responsible with our energy and responsible with our healing. I think we, I think, I think we owe it to humanity to do our own healing because there's such a ripple effect, mm-hmm. you know, that we have on everyone around us. Yeah. And especially like as parents, you know, before raising children and yeah, it just all carries through the family. Right. Here, I've, I've saved this for you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> here's your gift. This big bundle of garbage <laughs> in my life. And then when you're I've 30, you, you can spend 20 years on therapy. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> That's your second gift to look forward to later in life. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I have taken up so much of your time, but I'm so glad to have heard your story. And thank you for you know sticking around and talking so long. Thank you so much. Was, this has been great. Yeah, yeah good conversation. That was John talking with Sarah Stender Delaney, the founder of Rwandan Fair Trade Tea Company, Three Mountains. You can hear John's full conversation with her on our second Helpings podcast extra coming out in a couple of weeks. And look for his profile on her in the upcoming spring issue of WNC Magazine. To try Sarah's teas, just go to threemountains.org. That's three, the number three, mountains.org. <laughs> I was always working steady, but I never called it art. I got my shit together, meeting Christ and reading Marx. It failed my little fire, but it spread the dying spark. Go tell the young Messiah what happens to the heart. There's a mist of summer kisses where I tried to double park. The rivalry was vicious, the women were in charge. It was nothing, it was business, but it left an ugly mark. I've come here to revisit what happens to the heart. Steady, but I never called it art. 
It was just some old convention, like the horse before the cart. I had no trouble betting on the flood against the ark. You see, I knew about the ending. What happens to the heart?
What do you know about rice? Odds are, not a lot, since most people don't even really know how to cook it properly. So it's safe to say that most of us have no clue where it actually comes from. It is a staple on nearly every dinner table in every pocket of the world, but how did it get there? Some historians say it was just a matter of being part of the spice trade. But that's a heated debate, since timelines don't always match up in that story. But London-based journalist Sofia Ferreira-Santos has another explanation, one she learned about growing up in Brazil. Here's Catherine reading her story. Rice is a key part of many traditional meals in countries all over the world. Whether it's used as a side for curries or the main ingredient for rice pudding, most of the world's cultures swear by it. In Brazil in particular, rice is the main food that we consume, with our traditional meal being made up of rice, beans, and beef. It's so endearing to look back at childhood when my parents or grandparents would shout out, Olia Ahanta, and I'd have to come back into the house from an afternoon of playing with my neighborhood friends to eat dinner as quickly as possible so I could go outside again. I'm definitely not the only one with this sort of nostalgia, nor the only Brazilian who tried to wolf down their rice and beans in five minutes or less so they could go back to playing or riding their bikes. There's a specific way of cooking it as well, at least in my family's house, that made rice even more special and almost a ritual. You'd always have to chop your onions, crush your garlic, dice some potatoes and carrots, use a cup to measure out your rice and wash it until the water ran clear, fry it on some oil, and leave it boiling in three fingers of water with the lid on, and leave it alone. Rice is an item which we don't give too much thought to, but that connects us all as a people. Don't get me wrong, Brazil is a very divided country, and it will most likely remain that way for a very long time. But things like rice and beans are a huge part of our general culture, and it's hard to find a single person, whether white, black, rich or poor, that doesn't incorporate it into their diet in one way or another. Its history, however, is a curious one, and a story which lives with a small minority of the population. Most people don't really question where or how exactly rice came to Brazil and became such a staple. After all, it's just another food item that we purchase without giving a second thought to. But its hidden history reveals how rice made its trajectory to Brazil in a sacred way, which reflects our history, culture, and ancestry. As with many things, including the Americas, the existence of rice in South American countries is usually awarded to white colonials, who supposedly traveled with the grain from Asia and planted it in our land. With little written sources to back up any other alternative, it's easy to see how this is the widely believed narrative. Yet there is a version of the story which subverts this narrative and provides an alternative which makes sense to many of us. Many Brazilians, especially those of us with deep roots in northeastern, mainly black states like Bahia, have heard stories passed on through generations about how rice was really brought into Brazil. The oral tradition, passed on from family member to family member, tells the story of how African women who were enslaved and brought to Brazil were robbed of their cultures and traditions and stripped of all they knew during enslavement and had to find another way to allow their cultures to survive. The brutality of slavery had many fearing for their lives and the lives of their families even before being taken across the Middle Passage. Some enslaved women realized that the only way for their future generations and cultures to survive was to ensure that they were orally passing on their histories and cultures to future generations. Many of their cultures favored oral traditions rather than written, as well as many of their successors born into slavery would never be taught how to write. So creating oral narratives and songs to share their history became the chosen mode of cultural transferal. Most strikingly, though, many enslaved women took it upon themselves to save their traditions, including those based around food, hiding grains and seeds and necklaces and bracelets, and hiding grains of rice in their hair throughout the trips from Africa to the Americas. The story tells that once on South American shores, these women hid and planted the grains and seeds without their master's knowledge, to ensure their children would always be able to eat. 
In Quillombos, both during slavery where they were used as hideouts and communities of runaway slaves, and in today's Quillombos, rice is often still cultivated in this way and remains one of the most important food items. As many Quillombo residents come from a long line of ancestry leading back to the enslaved people who originally established the community, it's hard to question that many of the habits, cultures, and traditions still alive today could easily be traced back to the founders of the Quillombos too. The colonial narrative, which claims grains like rice and other foodstuffs like cassava were brought from Asian countries, is solely based on travel journals and personal diaries kept by slave owners and colonials during their expeditions. Yet they still somehow hold a lot more ground with Western academics that overpowers the social memory of thousands, if not millions of people. In a way, this debate is almost one person's narrative against a whole group's. But due to the freedom status and skin color of the opponents, somehow the one-person narrative has won every time. In parts of Brazil, this oral tradition is still passed on through generations, and many women still adapt the same cultivation methods as their enslaved ancestors did back then. Using a pilau, a wooden pestle and mortar, many northeastern Brazilians still cultivate rice in the same way, using the pilau to break up its grains. Not only that, but African cultivation tools like the pilau were adapted into other parts of our food culture, being used to make butter, peanut peshmolik, and the traditional pasoka, which my granny always makes in Bahia. There are also specific rice varieties, such as the red rice, that never had its roots in Asian countries, but can be traced back to Africa. And though colonials tried to take ownership of bringing these grains over, there's no logistical way they could have done so. Academic Judith Carney exposed this theory to the Western world in her revolutionary research piece, With Grains in Her Hair, or The Black Rice Thesis, and was met with a lot of controversy and claims that oral traditions isn't sufficient evidence. And though Carney's research was groundbreaking for Western audiences, it just confirmed what many of us who have heard these stories since childhood have known and finally gave us a written source with which to reclaim our food history. That was Catherine reading Sofia Ferreira Santos's story, Rice. You can find it and all of our stories on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant, founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by Chef William Disson a decade ago, the Marketplace Restaurant is celebrating its 41st anniversary this year. Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region and our farmers have to offer. Find the curve of the neck 
I expect to find devils inside of me If only to prove to me God is alive in me The salty green ocean My soul goes so swimmingly Ocean of spirit within me I hear it, I hear it I hear her breath rising beside of me The highway beneath the sun rolling like licorice Guts in a lover's crush To wander so aimlessly Falling in bliss As the driver shifts up into fifth I recall that I used to despair At the lost chance of knowing A much longed for beauty But now that I know it's my duty to love life Not try and know life To show it, to show I don't know Yet I know that it's real The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2020. All the text from our stories is available on our website, dirty-spoon.com. There you can also catch up on past episodes as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that website is by Katrin Doza, Corinne Pease, Kelly Manier, Garnet Fisher, Paul Choi, and Marianne Papineau. Music in this episode by The Walker Brothers, Penelope Isles, Dan Reeder, Blur, Leonard Cohen, Pugh Rogefeld, Twain, Otley Orvarsson, Garth Stevenson, and Lambert. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume, right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from 103.7 WPVM-LP, Asheville. Hey, before I let you go... I just thought you should know something. Do you like the background music in this show? All that droney ambient stuff? We use the work of a ton of great musicians, but some of that music John actually records and composes himself. And he's releasing an album of a bunch of those recordings on January 10th, which is the day before my birthday, called First Sight. Look for it wherever you buy or stream your music or go straight to jonathanammons.bandcamp.com.